Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. The book of Romans is truly one of the high peaks of the Bible. It is an intimidating mountain to climb, but the view from the top is well worth it. In the first four chapters, we hear that all have sinned, but the Apostle Paul takes us to the heart of why Jesus is such good news. We discover that his gospel changes everything about how we see the world. It means peace, it promises holiness, it beckons us to freedom, and it calls for love. For more information and audio content, please visit us at neac.com.au. Psalm 106, starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favour to your people. Come to my aid when you save them that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. We have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. Uh, The second Bible reading is uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. So that's on page 1114 of the Pew Bibles. So that's Romans 3, verses 9 to 20, not to verse 12. What What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin.
Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege we have this evening of coming to your word. And we ask that as we uh, gather in your name, that you would speak to us and that you would help us understand it. Uh, Father, it is challenging and we're thankful for that, but we ask that we might more richly understand your grace as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, occasionally I get the chance to watch TV, and one of the things I like to do is to watch those court case drama kind of TV shows. Um, Perhaps you're familiar with them, things like Silk or Suits or... uh, I don't really like Law and Order, but that's another one of those things. And you kind of know how they work, don't you? There's kind of twists and turns in the trial, and there's all kinds of uh, statements being made, and sometimes there's extra witnesses, and and... The drama unfolds and then you get to a point in the trial where there's a summing up, a closing argument and and this is the dramatic part of the trial and the prosecutor says, this person is guilty because, and you hear why the person is guilty. Well, as we come to Romans chapter 3 tonight, um, Romans chapter 3 verses 9 to 20, we find Paul summing up his argument. It's like he's coming to his closing argument. If you remember um, earlier on in Romans chapter 1, we've read these words in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. From that point on, Paul has been trying to convince us that we need salvation. He's first turned his mind to the Gentiles. And so in verse 18 we read, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He points out that God has been revealed, that people can know who God is, but actually they've suppressed the truth about God. And as that passage unfolds, as we saw a number of weeks ago, there are a number of consequences because of that. Paul then turns to his Jewish audience and raises with them the issues of the law and circumcision. And so in chapter 2, verse 17, we read, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship, if you know his will and what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and he goes on and he tells them that, well, actually they've failed. They may well have the law, they may well have been God's people, and they may well have been given the law, But in fact, they've failed. And yes, they may even have circumcision as a sign of belonging to God's covenant community. But in fact, many people are not circumcised of the heart. It's not reflected in their hearts. And they've failed there too. And so, as we come to this closing argument, Paul is summing up all these arguments And he's saying, you are accused and you are accountable. So come with me as we look at this chapter together. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So he's bringing those two together. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Now the sense there is that we are in bondage. Uh, It's a bit like having a slave master and we're slaves and we're accountable to the slave master. In fact, 
Paul uses this kind of language a little bit later on in Romans chapter 6 when he says this, when you were slaves to sins, you were, you were free from the control of righteousness. The idea is that when we're under sin, we are controlled by sin. It's our master. It has dominion over us. We have no choice but to go on sinning, in a sense. What Paul is saying here, we're reminding us of. We are people who are all under sin. Well, how is Paul going to prove that? What is he going to say? Well, you might remember he's speaking to um, a mainly Jewish audience, we think, at this point. And he continues his argument in this way. He points them to the word of God. Uh, What we see is a list of quotes here from the Old Testament, from Psalms and Isaiah. And he points them to the word of God and says, look, this is how it applies. And he begins this way. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you see the point? No one, not even one, no one, no one, all have turned away. No one, not even one. He couldn't be clearer. There is no one, no one who understands or seeks God. Is that true? No one who understands or seeks God? That seems a pretty incredible claim, doesn't it? Has kind of Paul overreached at this point? Is he kind of using hyperbole in in the midst of his dramatic court scene? Well, actually, I don't think he is. Paul is making clear that no one seeks God on his own terms. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. We all are like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to their own way. It's a theme that actually runs throughout the Bible. The idea that we don't seek God, that we turn away from him. But how does that work? Uh, You've met people who are interested in trying to work out who God is. I remember inviting some hippies home at 14. And when I was 14 years old, invited them home to my place, met them down the street, said, Mum and Dad, let's give these people a meal. And they were searching for God. They were travelling around the world searching for God. You might have met people like that too. What is Paul actually getting at here? Well, I think Martin Luther had a little bit of an insight into this, which is quite helpful. He said this, no one seeks after God. That is true, both of those who do not know, do not care for God and for those who imagine themselves to seek after God. And this is the important bit. They do not seek after God as he desires to be sought and to found, be found. The truth is, We might think we're seeking after God, but very often we're actually just seeking after things for ourselves. I want to find God because he can make my life better. I want to find God so I can feel less guilty. I want to find God in order that he can help my friend or my family. The Bible says we do not seek God on his own terms. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here. We do not seek God 
on his own terms. But you say, okay, well, maybe that's correct. But what about this next statement? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Surely there's people who do good. I mean, we know people who do good. Nelson Mandela, surely he did a good thing. Surely the nurses I saw in the hospital this week were doing good things. They were very generous and kind. You know people who do good things. What is Paul saying here? How's he overreached? Is he, is he saying something that's simply not true? Well, I think the clue comes in that first line. There is no one righteous, not even one. What Paul is saying here is as we stand before God, we stand before him as people who have failed, who have not lived up to his standards. We have not lived the life he's called us to live. I guess one way of illustrating it is like this. Some of you will know the long-distance swimmer, Susie Moroni. She's an amazing woman. She swam across the channel twice, and she was the fastest woman to do it. She also swam from the Florida Straits to Cuba, sorry, from in the Florida Straits from Cuba to the United States, and she was the youngest person to do it. Remarkable woman. Now, imagine you put her and myself in a contest. Uh, We stand on the edge of Bondi, and the challenge is for us to swim to New Zealand. Okay, so we both get in the water. I last about 50 metres, and I start drowning. She lasts an awful long time, But actually, she never makes it to New Zealand. She would never make it to New Zealand. It's just too far. And she drowns. And I think that's Paul's point here. We might do good things. We might do great things. There might be people who do amazing things. But actually, when it comes to standing before God, we don't make the distance. We don't get there. God's standards are perfect and we fall short of that perfect standard. And so that's why Paul can say, there is no one who does good, not even one. Not even if you can swim long distance. Not even if you're really, really good, will you make it. You will actually fail God's standards. Well, Paul goes on to describe what he means by that. He gives us a couple of illustrations. I guess they're representative illustrations, but they're pretty significant in terms of what he has to say, the ways that we go about failing. As we continue in this defence, he uses these words. They're, they're, They're words that are used from various parts of the scriptures and he's put them together and you can see why. He says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
Very quite, quite physical way of speaking, isn't it? Throats, tongues, lips, mouths. Wow. The way we speak matters. God notices when we speak to one another. God notices what we say about him. Imagine, for example, you got out your phone and you put it on record and you wandered around with it all day and recorded everything that you said. I wonder what it would be like to listen to it at the end of the day. I suspect we would be shocked. I suspect as we heard ourselves speak, we would be appalled that we actually don't actually live up to our own standards of what we expect of ourselves, let alone God's standards. And Paul's just simply reminding us that our speaking reflects our hearts. It reflects who we worship, whom we worship. That's why our speech practices deceit. Why the poison of vipers is on our lips. Why our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Because our hearts are not right. And Paul is reminding us, take stock, listen. Listen to what you say, listen to what you do. Hear yourself. Paul not only talks about these acts of speech, he also talks about our actions. And he picks one in particular. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Paul here is referring to violence. Once again, we're kind of taken back, and Paul, are you, you know, is this really a defense? Like, I don't feel like a violent person. I don't tend to commit violence against other people. How, how can this be? And then, of course, you remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he speaks to his disciples and he says, You have heard, long, heard that it was said that people of people long ago, you shall not murder anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus says to his disciples, actually, the seed of murder is anger. Seed of murder is anger. That is within you. Like the murderer, you too deserve judgment. So Paul, once again, is bringing home his argument. He's reminding us over and over again that we are in trouble, that we need salvation. We need God's help. In fact, he brings it down to the point at the last bit of this passage where he says, there is no fear in their eyes before God. Of course, that idea of fear runs throughout the Old Testament. Take, for example, Psalm 111, verse 10, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. All who follow his precepts have a good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. The reality is we don't 
often fear God. We don't recognize him in his rightful place. We don't see the world as he sees it. We don't treat him with awe and reverence. We don't live out the way he's called us to be. And Paul is saying, you stand accused. The words that you speak, the acts that you engage in, your anger, stand and make sure that you are accused. Well, in this final paragraph, as Paul concludes uh, this particular point in his in Romans, he moves from saying, we are accused, to we are accountable. Come with me to chapter, uh, verse 19. Now we know, whatever the law says, it says it to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world called accountable, held accountable to God. And then if you look in the passage that we have with us tonight, he goes on to say, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, rather that through the law we become conscious of sin. Now, there's a bit of a complicated argument here, so let's see if we can unpack it a bit. As Paul concludes this argument, the summation of what he says, he says to those who are listening, those who are familiar with the law, Now, we know whatever the law says. What law is he referring to? Well, most probably he's referring to the Torah, but he may also be referring to the the passage that's just gone past. He's taken a whole lot of uh, words from Psalms and Isaiah in the words that he's just spoken. He may be referring to the, the Old Testament, in fact. Whatever the case, he says... He continues in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now Paul will go on to speak about this a little bit later on and unpack just exactly what he means. But the truth is that God's word, God's law, presents us with the demands of God. It reminds us of our constant failure. It helps us be aware of our sins. Yes, it tells us what sin is, but it actually reminds us that we fail. That we don't do the right thing about God, before God. And at the heart of Paul's contention here is we are incapable of doing anything to gain acceptance with God. We cannot do anything. Now Paul applies this more generally. Uh, If you look back at verse 19 when he says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. Now it seems a little bit odd because the law would have been known by those who are Jewish but not necessarily by those who are outside. And perhaps what what Paul's actually doing here is kind of using a, a greater to lesser argument. He's saying, well, if the Jews can't be excluded from sin's tyranny... It surely follows that the Gentiles who have no claim to God's favour are also guilty. He's saying, well, in the end, whether you've got the law or not, you are accountable. You are guilty. There is no way out. And then he delivers this line. The kind of line that 
leaves you with a thud. So that every mouth will be silenced. Paul's point is, there are no words to speak in your defence. There are no excuses. There's no trying to wriggle out of this. Trying to make up some reason why God should accept you. He's saying, stop trying. Be silent. Listen to what God is saying. Hear him. You can do nothing to make yourself acceptable to him. You need his salvation. And the wonderful truth is, as we will go on to see as we unpack Romans more, is that God wants to give you a great gift. He wants to turn that voice, those lips, that throat, from a throat that deceives and brings hurt and anger to other people to a voice that sings his praises. He wants to take your anger and your heart that is so corrupted and turn it towards love. He wants to take what is a life that is dead and give you new life. We have a gracious and wonderful God. But tonight we need to understand that we are accused and we remain silent because we also are accountable for what we've done. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the challenge it brings us. We pray that that might seep deep deep into our hearts and that we might stop making excuses, that we might stop running and that we might just be still and silent before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.